Chapter 9 of Max by Catherine Cecil Thurston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 9 The ascent of the heights had been exciting. The descent held a sense of satisfaction. At a more sober pace, with a finer, less exuberant sense of comradeship, the two passed down the hundred-odd steps of the Escalier de Saint-Marie, taking an occasional peep into some dark and silent corner, halting here and there to glance into the dimly lighted hallway of some mysterious house. On the upward way there had been all anticipation. Now, with appetites appeased, they toyed with their sensations like diners with their dessert. "'Who are the people living in these houses?' The boy put the question in a whisper, as if fearful of disturbing the strange silence, the close secrecy that hung about them. "'The people who live here? God knows!' Probably you'll find a blanchisseuse on the ground floor, and on the fourth a poet, or perhaps a musician, like our fiddler of Louise. This is the real Bohemia, you know, not the conscious Bohemia, but the true one. That is lawless, simply because it knows no laws. They come to the end of the steps, and were once again traversing the dim rue André de Sartre, the boy's eyes and ears awake to every impression. Yes, he said in slow meditative answer. "'Yes, I think I understand. "'It must be wonderful to be born unfettered.' "'I don't know about wonderful. "'It's a profoundly interesting condition. "'You get that blending of egoism and originality, "'daring and scepticism, "'that may produce the artist, "'or may produce the criminal.' "'But you believe that the creature of temperament, "'of egoism and originality, "'may spring up in a lawful atmosphere "'as well as in a lawless one?' The question came softly. Max had ceased to look about him, ceased to observe the streets that grew more crowded, more brightly lighted, as they made their downward way. Blake smiled. The tares among the wheat, eh? Yes. Oh, of course I admit the tares among the wheat, but such growths are mostly unsatisfactory. Forced fruit is never precisely the same as wild fruit. Why not? "'Because, my boy, there is a self-consciousness about all forced things, "'and the hallmark of the Bohemian is an absolute ingenuousness.' "'But, to return to your example, "'suppose the tear among the wheat had always recognised itself, "'had always craved to be a tear with other tares, "'until at length its roots spread and spread "'and passed beyond the boundary of the wheat-field. "'Why should it not flourish and lift its head among the weeds?' "'Because, boy, it would have its traditions.' It might live forever among the reeds. It might flourish and reign over them. But it would have a reminiscence unknown to them, the knowledge of the years in which it strove to mould itself to the likeness of the wheat before rebellion woke within it. I know, I know. I know Bohemia. Love Bohemia. But at best I am only a naturalised Bohemian. I can live on a crust with these good creatures, or I can send my gold flying with theirs. But I am hanged, if, for instance... I can sin in quite the delicious, childlike, whole-hearted way that is their prerogative. I have done most of the things that they have done, but their disarming candour, their simple joy and their exploits, is something debarred to me. It isn't for nothing, I tell you, that I have countless God-faring generations behind me. He spoke jestingly, but his glance, when it met the eager impetuosity of the boys, was quiet and observant. "'I disagree with you,' Max cried suddenly. "'I disagree with you wholly. 
Individuality has nothing to do with environment, nothing to do with ancestry. Ah, that's not logical. Humanity is only a chain of which we are the last links forged. I've had my own delusions when I set the ideal to the right about and made realism my god. But as time has gone on, my theories have gone back on me, and tradition has come into its own. Until now, I see the skeleton in every beautiful body, and the heart of me craves something behind even the bones, the soul of the creature. But that is different, because your desire and your theory have been the common desire and theory, the things that burn themselves out. My theory is not of the body, it is of the mind. I only contend that in all the greater concerns of life I am be being perfectly competent to stand alone. My dear boy, by the mercy of God all the ideas of youth are reversible. My fire has been extinguished. Your ice will hold until the sun is in the zenith, and not one moment longer. I deny it, I deny it. He spoke with a fine defiance. He paused the more convincingly to express himself, but even as he paused his eyes and his mind were suddenly opened to a fresh impression, allured from the moment of gravity, caught and held by the lights and crowds into which they had abruptly emerged, lights and crowds through which the pervading sense of a pleasure chase stole like a scent borne on a breeze. "'Where are we?' he said sharply. "'What place is this?' "'The Boulevard de Clichy. Come, boy, discussions are over. The curtain is up. The play is on. Without apology, Blake caught his shoulder and swung him out into the roadway, as he had swung him across the Esplanade des Invalides that morning. Come, I am going to insist upon a new medicine. My first prescription was not the right one. You are too theoretical tonight for a place of traditions. We'll shelve our little cabaret till some hour when genius burns, and instead I'll plunge you straight into common frivolity as though you were some cockney tourist getting his weekend's worth. Have you ever heard of the Bal Tabarin? Never, and I'd much, much rather— No, you wouldn't. I have spoken. Come along. Before Max could resist, he was swept across the wide roadway, round a corner, and through what looked to him like the entrance to a theatre. There were many people gathered about this entrance, men in evening dress, men in shabby, insignificant clothes, women in varying types of costume. Max would have lingered to study the little crowd, but Blake looked upon his hesitancy with distrust, and still retaining his grip upon his shoulder, half led, half pushed him through a short passage straight into the dancing-hall, where on the instant his ears were assailed by a flood of joyous sound in the form of a rhythmic swinging waltz. His eyes blinked before the flood of light to which the Parisian pins his faith for such pugly pleasures and his nostrils were assailed by a penetrating smell of scent and smoke. Dazed and a little frightened, he drew back against a wall, overwhelmed by the atmosphere. Superficially there was little astonishing in the Bal Tamborin, but to the uninitiated being with wide eyes it seemed in very truth the gay world, with its stirring music, its walls flaunting their mirrors and their paintings, its galleries with their palms and railed in boxes, and beneath, subtly suggestive adjunct, the bars, with their countless bottles of champagne, bottles of every conceivable size built up in serried rows, as though Venus would raise an altar to Bacchus. Leaning back against the wall, Max surveyed the scene, fascinated and confused. A thousand questions rose to his lips, but not one found utterance. 
Again and yet again his bright glance ranged from the gay red of the bandsman's coats to the lines of spectators sitting at the little tables under the galleries, returning inevitably and persistently to the pivot of the scene, a space of pale-coloured waxed floor in the centre of the hall, where innumerable couples whirled or glided to the tune of the waltz. He'd seen many a ball in progress, but never had he seen dancing as he saw it here, where Grace rubbed shoulders with absolute gaucherie, and wild hilarity mingled unashamed with a curious seriousness, one had almost said iciness, of demeanour. The women, who formed the definite interest of the picture, were for the most part young, with a youth that lent slimness and suppleness to the figure, and permeated through the freely used paint and powder like some unpurchasable essence. Among this crowd of women, some were fair, some brown, a few red-haired, but the vast majority belonged to the type that was to become familiar to Max as the true Montmartreuse, the girl possessed of the dead white face, the red sensual lips, the imperfectly chiselled nose, attractive in its very imperfection, and the eyes, black, brown or grey, that see in a single glance to the bottom of a man's soul. Richness of apparel was not conspicuous among them, but all wore their clothes with the sense of fitness that possesses the Parisienne. Each head was held at the angle that best displayed the well-dressed hair and cleverly trimmed hat. Each light skirt was held waist-high with a dexterity that allowed the elaborate petticoat to sweep out from the neat ankles in a whirl of lace. Some of these girls danced with pleasure-seeking young Englishmen or Americans in conventional evening dress, others with little clerks in ill-fitting clothes and bowler hats, while many chose each other for partners and glided over the waxed floor in a perfection of motion difficult to excel. Leaning back against the wall, he watched the picture, gaining courage with familiarity, and unconsciously a little gasp of regret parted his lips as the waltz crashed to a finish, and the dancers moved in a body towards the tables and the bars. Then, for the first time, he remembered Blake, and looking round saw his green eyes fixed upon him in a quizzical, satirical glance. "'Well, the devil has a pleasant way with him, there's no denying it. Come and find a seat. The next will be one of the special dances, a can-can or a Spanish dance. I'd like you to see it.' "'Who will dance it?' "'Who? Oh, probably, if it's the can-can, half a dozen of the best-looking of those girls with the elaborate lingerie. They're paid to dance here. They're part of the show.' "'I see.' Max was interested, but his voice did not sound very certain. "'And the others?' he added. "'That fair girl, for example, sitting at the table with the hideous, untidy little man in the brown suit?' Blake's eyes sought out the couple. "'What? The two smiling into each other's eyes? "'Those, my boy, are true citizens of the true Bohemia. "'She is probably a little dressmaker's assistant, whose whole available capital is sunk in that in that piero hat and those pretty shoes. And he, well, he might be anything with that queer, clever head. But he's probably a poet in the guise of a journalist, picking up a few francs when he can and where he can. A precarious existence, but lived in Elysium. Wish I were twenty, and unanalytical. Come along. It's to be a Spanish dance. You mustn't miss it. They made their way forward, pushing towards the open space, upon which a shaft of limelight had been thrown, the better to display the faces and figures of eight Spanish women, who, dressed in their national costume, 
stood preening themselves like vain birds, tossing their heads and showing their white teeth in sudden smiles of recognition to their friends among the audience. While Max's interested eyes were travelling from one face to another, the signal was given, and with an electric spontaneity the dance began. It was a wonderful dance, a dance of sensuous contortion crossed and arrested at every moment by the fierce flash of pride, the swift gesture of contempt indicative of the land that had conceived it, a dance that would diminish to the merest sway of the body, accompanied by the slow hypnotic enticement of half-closed eyes, and then, as a fan might shut or open, leap back in an instant to a barbaric frenzy of motion, in which loosened hair and flaming draperies carried the beholder's senses upon a tide of intoxication. Max was conscious of quickened heartbeats and flushed cheeks, as the dancers paused, and the high, shrill call that indicated an encore pierced through the smoke-laden air. And without question he turned and followed Blake to one of the many tables standing in the shadow of the galleries. The table was packed tightly between other tables, and in the moment of intoxication he had no glance to spare for his neighbours. Even Blake's voice, when it came to him, sounded far away and impersonal. "'Sit down, boy. What will you drink?' "'What do you drink, mon ami? I will drink.' He sat down, and with a new exuberance threw himself back in his seat. It was a moment of bravado that reckoned not at all with circumstance. His gesture was imperiously reckless. The space about him was crowded to suffocation. By a natural sequence of events, his head came into sharp contact with the waving plumes of a hat at the table behind him. With volubility and dispatch, the owner of the hat expressed her opinion of his awkwardness. One or two people near them laughed, and, flushing a desperate red, he turned, raised his hat, and offered an apology. The possessor of the feathers was a woman of thirty, who looked ten years older than her age. Her face was unhealthily pale, even beneath its mask of powder, and her eyes were curiously lifeless. But her clothes were costly, and her figure fine, if a trifle robust. At sound of the boy's voice she turned. Her movement was slow and deliberate. Her gaze, in which a dull resentment smouldered, passed over his confused, flushed face, and rested upon Blake's. Then a light, if light it must be called, glimmered in her eyes, and her own mobile face relaxed into a smile. Allô, mon cher, but I thought you had the dropped out of my life. The boy, with a startled movement, turned his eyes on Blake, but Blake was smiling at the woman with the same pleasant smile, half humorous, half satirical, that he had bestowed dispassionately upon the young Englishman in the train the night before, and upon the little café proprietress of the Rue Faber, a smile that all his life had been a passport to the world's byways. "'What, you lizer!' he was saying easily, with only the faintest shadow of surprise. "'Well, if I have been dead, I am now resurrected. "'Let's toast old time since you are alone. "'Garçon, garçon!' "'Out of the crowd a waiter answered his call. "'Wine was brought, three glasses were brought and filled, "'while Max watched the performance, "'watched the ease and naturalness of it with absorbed wonder. "'Lizer,' said Blake, as the waiter disappeared, "'my friend who dared to interfere with that marvellous hat is called Max. "'Won't you smile upon him?' Max blushed again. He could not have told why, and the lady smiled a vague, detached smile. "'A pretty boy,' she said. "'He ought to have been a woman.' 
Then, sensible of having discharged her duty, she turned again to Blake. "'And the world, mon cher, it has been kind to you?' Blake laughed and drank some of his wine. "'Oh, I can't complain. If it isn't quite the same world that it was, the fault's in me. I'm getting old, Lisa. Eight and thirty come next March.' A palpable chill touched the woman. She shivered, then laughed a little hysterically, and finished her wine. "'Shush, shush, don't say such things,' Blake refilled her glass. "'I was jesting. A man is as old as he feels. A woman—' He lifted his own glass and smiled into her eyes with a certain kindliness of understanding. "'Come, Leeser, the old times aren't so far behind us. It was only yesterday that Jacques Auger painted you as a bacante in his mask of folly. Do you remember how angry you were when he used to kiss you, and the grape-juice used to run into your hair and down your neck?' Why, twas hardly yesterday. The woman looked down, and for a moment a shadow seemed to rest upon her, a something tangible and even fearful, that lent to her mask-like face a momentary humanity. Mon ami, she said in a toneless voice, do you remember that Jacques is ten years dead? Then suddenly, as if fleeing from her own fear, she looked up again, surfeiting her senses with the crowds, the lights, the smoke and scent and crashing music. "'But what folly!' she cried. "'Life goes on. "'The same round, is it not so? "'Life and love and jealousy? "'Come, little monsieur, what have you to say?' She turned to Max, sitting silent and attentive. But even as she turned, there was a flutter of interest among the tables behind her, and a young girl ran up, laying her hand upon her arm. "'Lisa!' she said with a little gasp. "'Lisa, he is here, and I am afraid.' Max looked up. It was the girl he had pointed out to Blake as sitting at the table with the ugly, clever-looking man, and his eyes opened wide in fresh surprise, fresh interest, as he studied the details of her appearance. She was of that most attractive type, the fair Parisienne. Her complexion was of wax-like paleness, her blonde hair broke into little waves and tendrils under her pure hat, while her eyes, clear and blue, proclaimed her extreme youth. As she stood now, clinging to the elder woman's arm, her mind showed itself in an utter naturalness, an utter disregard of the fact that she was observed. Max remembered Blake's words. These are true citizens of the true Bohemia. But the woman Lisa had turned at her cry, and laid a plump, jewelled hand over her slim and nervous fingers. Jacqueline, my child, what is wrong? He is here, and Lucien is here, and I am afraid. The words were vague, but the elder woman asked for no explanation. "'Does Lucien know?' The girl shook her head. "'And this beast, where is he?' The girl, silent from emotional excitement, nodded towards the opposite bar, and a light flickered up into Lisa's eyes as she scanned the crowd, divided from them by the space of waxed floor from which the Spanish dancers had just retreated. Max raised his glass and drank some of his champagne. His first dread of the place was gripping him again, exciting him, confusing him. All about him, like the scent-laden atmosphere, moved the crowd, the girls of Montmartre and their cavaliers. Everywhere was that sense of conscious enjoyment, that grasping of the mere moment that the Parisian had reduced to a science. It enveloped him like a veil, the artless artificiality of Paris. Everywhere, fans emblazoned with the words Bal Tabarin fluttered like butterflies, Everywhere cigar smoke mingled with the essences from the women's clothes. 
but beneath it all lurked a something unanalyzed, dimply understood, that chained his imagination. It crouched behind the women's expectant eyes, then suddenly it sprang forth like an ugly beast into a perfumed garden. It came in a moment, a little scuffle at the bar opposite, as a heavy, fair-bearded man disengaged himself from the crowd about him, a little flutter of interest as he made an unsteady way across the waxed floor, a little smothered scream from the girl as he lurched up to the table and paused, gazing at her with angry, bloodshot eyes. For a second of silence the two looked at each other, the girl with a frightened, fascinated gaze, the man with the slow insolence that drink induces. At last, muttering some words in a guttural tongue unknown to the boy, he swayed forward and laid a heavy red hand upon her shoulder. The gesture was brutal, masterful, expressive. A sense of mental sickness seized upon Max, while the woman Lisa suddenly braced herself, changing from the inert, half-hypnotised creature of a moment before into a being of fury. "'Sapristi!' she cried aloud. "'A pretty lover to come wooing!' And she added a phrase that had never found place in Max's vocabulary, and at which the surrounding people laughed. The words and the laugh were tired to the fire of the man's rage. He freed the girl's arm and struck the table with a resounding violence that made the glasses dance. It was the signal for a scene. In a second people at the neighbouring tables rose to their feet, chairs were overturned, a torrent of words poured forth from both actors and spectators, while through everything and above everything the band poured forth an intoxicating waltz. Max, forgetful of himself, stood with wide eyes and white, absorbed face. He saw the climax of the scene, saw the bearded man lean across the table and seize the girl by the waist, saw, to his breathless amazement, the woman Lisa suddenly grasp the champagne bottle and fling it full into his face. Then, abruptly, out of the maze of sensations, he felt someone grip him by the shoulder and march him straight through the crowd into the vestibule, on into the open air. Outside, in the glare of the lights, in the cold, fresh air of the street, he turned, white and shaking, upon Blake. "'Why did you do it?' he demanded. "'I think you were a coward. I would not have run away.' Blake laughed, though his own voice was a little uneven. His own face looked a little pale. "'There are some battlefields, boy, where discretion is obviously the better part of valour. I'm sorry I brought you here, for they generally are managed to avoid this sort of thing.' Max still looked indignant. "'But she was a friend of yours.' "'A friend, by God. "'But she called you her friend.' "'Friendship is a much-defaced coin that poverty-stricken humanity will always pass. "'Our friendship, boy, consists in the fact that she once loved and was loved by a man I knew. "'Poor Lisa. She had a bit too much heart for the game she played. "'And the heart is there still, for all the paint and powder and morphine she fights the world with.' Poor Lisa. Max's eyes were still wide, but the anger had died down. And the girl? he questioned. The girl and the brute and the man with the clever head? What are they all to do with each other and with her? Blake's lips parted to reply, but closed again. Never mind, boy, he said gently. Come along back to your hotel. You've seen enough life for one night. End of chapter 9